I wonder if you'd pray with me as we open up the Scriptures and uh, begin this morning's message. Father, I thank You for this great church. Thank You for this wonderful church family. We say that we are family, and that's because we believe that we are united underneath the head, Jesus Christ, and You have brought us into Your family, O Father God. And for that, we are thankful. Thank You for each person in here. Each of us has many things that are on our minds. We have presents to wrap and bills to pay and uh, family to visit. But for this next moment of time, we ask that you would give us a focus on your word and that you might teach us a little bit more about the birth of Christ and the implication it has for our lives, that you would prepare us, you would begin preparing us for Christmas morning that we would be renewed and refreshed by this great old story. We hear it every year, and so we get familiar with it, but it is still glorious. And it's surprising, and it's profound. And so we invite you to teach us, to speak to us even today. I ask with my brothers and sisters in here, with all of us, Lord, thanking you, Lord, for each person here, we ask together, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively would be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Most of the stories that I really love include a few foundational elements. You think about the stories that you enjoy the most, my guess is they probably include an underdog of some kind, and a struggle, and a period of waiting, and a period of perseverance, perhaps a period of great pain, which ultimately results in some kind of unexpected victory. That's true for most of our favorite stories, and that's certainly true for the Christmas story. There was no group of people who had their backs more against the wall. No group of people that was a greater underdog. No group of people that experienced oppression more, that should have been eliminated more, century after century after century. No group of people that struggled more and experienced more waiting and even silence than the Jews of Jesus' day. Many secular historians have said it's amazing that the Jews even are around today. That as you look at their history, it's incredible that they would have survived, and it really must be the hand of some providence that has enabled them to survive. It's interesting, the Jews went through perhaps their their darkest time as they waited for the Messiah, at least one of their darkest seasons. There was this long-awaited hope that they held on to that came from one of their prophets, a man named Isaiah, seven centuries before the time of Jesus, and it went like this. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. And that was the hope of the Jewish people. As they went into exile and out of exile, and they went through trials and triumphs, 
but they never were really free. That was their long-awaited hope for a Messiah who would fulfill those beautiful names. And they heard that hope reinforced again and again over the successive centuries by various prophets at many times and in different ways until they came to a period that was called the period of silence in their history where they did still have the written scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament. But other than that, there were no prophets speaking from the time of Malachi until the birth of Jesus. And that was a period of some 400 years that is considered the silent waiting time of this underdog people where it's quiet and they're waiting and longing and wondering, will God come through on that long-awaited promise? 400 years. We get in these prayer gatherings and we have 40 seconds of silence and then what happens? Get awkward. Who's going to finish this prayer out? You pray over something for your family, and for 40 days, you haven't heard God answer that prayer. You haven't seen God answer that prayer. And what happens? We're tempted to throw in the towel and give up on prayer. And yet for 400 years, they endured as they waited and waited for God to speak. I'm fascinated by this verse this Christmas, Galatians 4, verse 5, excuse me, Galatians 4, verse 4, it says, as they were waiting, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, that's you and me, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship into the family of God. Just think with me about that phrase. When the set time had fully come, after 400 years of waiting, that is when God sent His Son into the world to redeem all of those who would say, yes, I trust in you as Savior, and yes, I trust in you, dear God. What was it about that time? that God filled the darkness, that he filled the silence as the light was born. If you can endure with me just a little bit of history, I want to give you a very short history lesson that speaks to perhaps what God might have been doing in those centuries before to prepare the world for the birth of the wonderful counselor, the mighty savior, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. In 356 B.C., a man came to power by the name of Alexander the Great, and he led over the Greek Empire for some three decades. And as he led over the Greek Empire, he went from area to area across the Mediterranean world and North Africa and even into parts of Asia as they were establishing the Greek Empire. And he established cities and libraries for the propagation of Greek thought and language and philosophy. And so he develops these libraries all over the place. And Greek is established as the language of the day in that um, in that world that later became the Roman Empire, and it was the language of the day, much like English is the language of the day today, for probably what would be now about 50 nations. So he establishes Greek all over this region. Shortly thereafter, the Romans come to power, 
And by the time Christ is born, well, with the Romans in power, you have the Old Testament scriptures translated from the ancient Hebrew into the Greek of the day, such that people from maybe 50 different regions, 50 different nations, could read the Bible in their own language for the very first time. Then when the biographies of Jesus, which were stated first by Jesus in two other languages, Aramaic and Hebrew, when they get translated, guess which language they get translated into? Into Greek. So the world around them could read them. Then you have the, Romes, the, the Romans coming into power. And as the Romans are in power, one of the things that Rome does so brilliantly in a way that no other culture had ever done before is develop an infrastructure system whereby all of the, all of the cities of the Roman Empire could be connected to each other. You remember that phrase, all roads lead to Rome? That's because that's true. In the Roman Empire, the system of roads developed where all the different roads would eventually lead to Rome and all the different cities were interconnected. Why is that important? Because when Jesus was born, the word of Jesus' arrival could go out across the Roman world for all the world to hear. Do you see? The system of infrastructure, the technology that was developed in the Roman Empire wouldn't be surpassed anywhere in the world for another 1,500 years. Meanwhile, in its power, the Roman Empire oppressed the Jewish people. Jews were second-class citizens in the empire and were never really free, such that Jesus said things like, when a Roman soldier asks you to pick up his armor and take it with him for one mile, you go ahead and do this. Take that armor with him a second mile. And Jesus saying that was not just a clever turn of phrase. He was speaking to the Jewish reality on a day-in and day-out basis within the Roman Empire. They're second-class citizens who are required by law that any time a Roman soldier would ask them to carry their armor, they're required to stop and take that armor with the Roman soldier for a mile in any direction at any time of day or night. How do you like that life? And Jesus says... Be the kind of subversive servants who will throw shame on their heads and go with them a second mile as well. Be second mile kind of people. This is the world that the Jews were living in. It was a world in which they were allowed to practice their faith, but only on the reservation. I love the way Jordan put it a few weeks ago when he talked about how we are expected in our culture to hold our faith on the reservation. The most important thing to us, that which holds eternal life in Jesus Christ, we are expected in our culture to shut up about it everywhere except for in the church. Isn't that true? We're expected to do that. And that's the way it was legally required of the Jews that they wouldn't ever talk about their faith anywhere outside of their walls. So the result for Jewish faith was this. They just started looking at each other, and once you're only looking at other people inside your walls, what inevitably ends up happening is you get legalistic. You start evaluating other people compared to yourself because you're not looking outside of your walls for permission. And those of you who know your biblical history know that's exactly what happened to the Jews at this time. A group of people called the Pharisees came to religious power in Israel, and all they did was poke their fingers at others, kind of condescend, and note the way ordinary people weren't living up to faith as well as they were. The result was this internal pressure on the Jews and an external pressure 
from the Romans toward the Jews as well, such that faithful Jews like Mary and Joseph, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, like Simeon and Anna, must have wondered, has God abandoned us? Will that prophecy ever come true? Is this whole idea of a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace, is this just an unanswered prayer? The time had fully come. And after 400 years, God broke through the silence and he whispered to Joseph and to Mary and to Zechariah and to Elizabeth through an angel who had a name called Gabriel. And as it turns out, Gabriel had been quite busy preparing the way, hadn't he? The Greeks and the Romans enabled the word of Jesus arrival to spread like wildfire like never before. And after centuries of oppression and legalism, Jews ached for Messiah to light up the darkness like never before. So what we're going to talk about here though this Christmas season is these three ways that we see a light born into the world and the way it makes a difference for us today. The light of Jesus born into the world and still he lives and because of that we have hope which we're going to talk about today, even through the silence, we have hope. And we have the presence of God today, even when we think we're alone, we are not alone, we have the presence of God, and we'll talk about that tomorrow. And because of the birth of Jesus, we have the peace of God, peace of God come to us, goodwill to all men and women who trust in Him. And we'll talk about that next Sunday after a week that oftentimes doesn't feel so peaceful. Be sure to come back next Sunday as well. Even in the silence, I want to tell you today, even in the silence, God is at work in surprising ways. Even in the struggle that you might be in today, even in the heartache, even when you feel like your back is against the wall and you're persevering and you feel like you're the underdog, know this, God is still at work behind the scenes, oftentimes bringing about some future that you could never imagine. He's oftentimes at work in surprising ways that we couldn't guess right now. We have hope because of that. Now, in our contemporary lexicon, what do we mean by the word hope? In my experience, most people, when they use the word hope, they're referring to wishful thinking. I really hope this might happen. I really hope that someday my Denver Broncos might make the playoffs again. Wishful thinking, right? This, uh, it, that's how we talk about it today. But biblically, hope means this, confident expectation. It's a deep trust that God is true to his word and he will follow through on what he has said. Biblically, hope is not wishful thinking. It's trust in the character of God that he will come through and he will be true to his word. You see, God has more integrity than any person we've ever met. And so we can put our hope firmly on him and know that the things that he has actually promised will indeed come to pass. Let me share with you just a few verses that speak to the integrity of God in which we place our hope. 
Numbers 23, 19 says this, God is not a man that he should lie. Oh, don't you love that? You have a God who doesn't lie. Are you amazed at how often people lie? I'm I'm just shocked. People lie all the time. Little white lies, little half-truths. You want to be a person of integrity? Just tell the truth all the time. I love the way Mark Twain said it. Just tell the truth and you don't have to remember what you said. Okay? That's God. Though he remembers what he said. He is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he not promise and then act? Does he not speak and then fulfill it? He does just what he says. He has integrity. Or you think of James 1.17, which says, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, flowing down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not... Anybody? Who doesn't change. He doesn't change. He doesn't shift like the shadows. We can count on his character today, tomorrow, and forevermore. We can root ourselves in him. That gives us hope for the future, that he's a promise-keeping, faithful God of integrity. Here's a promise, though, that was fulfilled in Jesus from Isaiah 7:14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This, of course, was promised by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was conceived in Mary. And then it was realized when Jesus was conceived in Mary and spoken of to Mary there in Matthew 1.23. You know, there are like 40 Old Testament prophecies that are perfectly fulfilled by Jesus Christ. These are predictions, statements by God through the prophets that are fulfilled by Jesus Christ in a way that someone couldn't manufacture or engineer so they would turn out just so. And many of the different prophecies have to do with Jesus' birth. Like that one, that he would be born to a virgin. Or the one that he would be born in the city of David called Bethlehem, even though he wasn't from Bethlehem. Or that he would be born to the ancestry of King David. Or the fact that he would have one who would precede him, who would preach a gospel of repentance And that was his cousin, John the Baptist, who preached a gospel of repentance and prepared people to hear the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. Right after the word of repentance always comes the grace of God to you and to me. And that's the way it was. First came John the Baptist with a word of repentance, and then came Jesus with grace and truth for each of us. It was prophesied in advance that he would have to flee violence in his hometown, that the newborn family would have to find refuge, asylum, if you will, in a foreign land called Egypt, which is exactly what they did when King Herod goes into his bloodbath, and they escape from Bethlehem, and they go down to Nazareth, that he would be the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the mighty God, the prince of peace, which so many of us in this room have found him to be just that. Friends, do you know this Christmas that ours is a promise-keeping God, that he fulfills his word? And oftentimes the way he fulfills his word is through the silence, it's through the struggle, and it comes in surprising and unexpected ways, but we keep our eyes open to the way that he'll fulfill his word as we keep persevering and we keep praying and we don't give up. 
And that too is part of the Christmas story. You think about the surprising, unexpected ways that this all went down for Mary and Joseph. We forget how surprising it was because it's so familiar to us. But she was a 15-year-old peasant girl. And she had never been with a man. She was betrothed, but not yet married in our sense of the word marriage. And so she turns up pregnant, and she is shocked and stunned, and no doubt he is as well. And so they listen to the angel Gabriel and the Holy Spirit, and they say, yes, we will engage on this roller coaster ride of faith, even as all of our family members and friends, they're rolling their eyes at us. And there is no doubt they would have been the subject of ridicule and shame and gossip at the water well in the town of Nazareth. But they said yes to God. We will go on this journey with you, God, even though it doesn't make sense. Even to the point of her being nine months pregnant, and Joseph picks her up and puts her on a donkey. Wives, how would you like that? And they don't go over to Kearney Regional Hospital or Good Samaritan a couple miles down the road. They go 90 miles on a donkey, nine months pregnant, from their hometown where all of their family members were in Nazareth to another town that they didn't know called Bethlehem. And there, surrounded by cows and chickens and sheep, God sent His Son, born of a young virgin, born under law, to redeem people like you and me who live under the heavy weight of the law to grant us adoption into his family that we would be called the sons and the daughters of God. And to be sure, Jesus, contrary to that old song, he let out a cry. It was surprising. It was unexpected. And yet through the oppression and through all those years of being the underdog, through the silence, God was at work in these beautiful, surprising ways. You know, one of my favorite things about being a pastor is I get to hear these stories from time to time about people whose backs have been pushed up against the wall. Many people in this church who have gone through heartbreaking stories, and you say, how are they going to possibly get out of this? And they're praying and they're praying, and they don't see a way out of it. And one of the most powerful stories that I've heard over the past 18 months or so comes from a couple in our church named Michael and Emily Kennedy. And I want to give you an update on what's going on with their story because many of you have been aware of their story. Many of you have given to them, and hundreds in this church have been praying for them over the past 18 months or so. It, it was some time ago, I want to say maybe two years ago now, that they learned that they were pregnant. And they go to the doctor, and they learn that they're not just pregnant, but they have twins. Oh, happy day. And so they're excited and they're getting ready for that, but they come back to the doctor several weeks later and they learn that one of their twins had died. And so they start to grieve. And they go through a time of mourning until they go back to the doctor again several weeks later and they learn from the doctor that we were wrong and that baby is alive. But please prepare yourself. That baby will be born with vast disabilities and your life will be different from this point forward. 
They go home and they prepare themselves for that. They pray some more. And they come back to the doctor well one more time. And the doctor says, your baby might live, but probably only for a few hours. I can tell you with basically 100% certainty that that baby will die after a few hours because of his condition. Please prepare yourself for that. Fast forward now, about 18 months. I want to give you the rest of their story, but I'd like you to listen as they share a bit of it for themselves. You can see their full story online. Our tech director did an amazing job putting the story together. You can go see it at carneyefree.com. But take a look at a bit of their story right now. Really interesting for the doctors too because they'd never actually seen anything like it before. And these are the best in the country. They got excited because as a doctor you don't see new things very often when you're in that it's kind of routine. So their bedside manner kind of slipped a little bit and they'd throw things out there that were terrifying for adults. Like, yeah, it could be this and that. And we're like, what, what, is that, what does that mean? He's like, well, it can mean X, Y, and Z. And we're like, what does that mean? And our hearts would start to go and then we'd have three hours back to and, talk about it and speculate. And there was a whole bunch of stuff that was unknown. And, then you know, and over that time saying, okay, here's a bunch of stuff we've been given here's where we are and we know that God loves us and he loves our two little babies and at the end of it we don't know we can only speculate over here and that like that was where my faith really started to grow was out of this just fearful difficult time of this very speculative pregnancy arriving at okay the only person who knows clearly they don't know the only person that knows is God um what I would say to someone who's in a really tough, dark place. I mean, first of all, it's okay to be really, really upset and really sad. You know, I would come to church and just like sob through all the music and kind of stop being self-conscious about it at some point because I was just, it was just so hard for so long. So, I mean, first of all, I think it's, I think people try to suck it up too much. I think it's okay to be sad and it's okay to acknowledge that what you're going through is ridiculously difficult and those feelings are valid um, and um, I think the hope that I would would want to share with someone else is is that I started out you know I kind of gave you my whole story and I started out thinking I might know kind of what the outcomes might be they might be a B or C and today we're sitting in D and we didn't know about D we didn't know what D looked That's like true. we didn't believe in D we didn't even know that D could be possible or that this thing over here that exists now that is my beautiful wonderful reality that's my family and my life and and it's not perfect and it is 100% not even a thing that I considered was possible God did it with ease and and I think that I would say to anybody who is having a hard time that May, I mean, none of us can, can say what will happen, and it, it's true that what's happening right now is not what you wanted, not what you ever hoped for yourself, but it will not like be like that forever, and it will get better, and it will be something that you didn't know was possible, that God already knows is possible, and God, God has directed all of our steps, and He's directing you over here, but you, we don't know what that is. So as much as you can hang on to the Lord and to your community, of people who love you. I mean, that 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 is my best hope, I think, for anyone, anyone struggling under any circumstances. Did you get that? Pretty cool. 
We were told it would be A or B or C, and yet, against every word from every specialist, it ends up being D, two healthy babies there on the screen. And the specialist even said to Michael on one occasion, Michael, i got to tell you, I believe in miracles, and we just witnessed one. I never could have imagined that happening. Now, that's a beautiful story in itself, but that's obviously not how all stories end. And many stories end in a way that, that leave us grieving. But the key takeaway from Emily's description there that I pray that you would hold on to today is this. In the midst of all of that distress, and it's been unmitigated distress for them for a long, long time, in the midst of that, they held on to this. God knows us, and God loves us. And God knows, and He loves our little babies. And only God knows their future. Nobody else. But I will hold on to this, that whatever happens, God has our future in his hands. And friends, when you can hold on to these truths, you can hold on to these promises of God that gives you hope with whatever duress you are going through and whatever silence you are experiencing from God right now, that is able to give us hope. One of my go-to verses that I go to on a regular basis when I'm personally struggling or experiencing some unanswered prayer or going through a time of suffering or I'm meeting with some of you and you seem to be going through a heartbreaking uh, circumstance for many months at a time is this beautiful passage from Romans chapter 5, which says simply this, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Hold on with me here. We rejoice in our sufferings. Do you rejoice in your suffering? Here, here. No, we don't. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that it's the avenue by which we get, we get that which we cannot get any other way. We won't have perseverance outside of suffering. And we won't have character outside of perseverance. And perseverance takes time. And we won't have hope outside of perseverance and character. And yet God has poured his love out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And so we have hope that God is going to work something great even through the silence, even through the struggle, whatever it might be for you. This is the consistent testimony of God over and over again in the scriptures. He works beauty out of the ashes. Even in the silence, God is at work in very, very surprising ways. We could look at hundreds of examples like this in the scripture that sound like Michael and Emily's. In a smaller way, sound like Jesus and the story of the Jews. Even the story of the Jews through the prophet Isaiah way back when they were cast into Babylon during their first exile. Look at this one more passage. And then I'll come to a close from Jeremiah 29. This is one of our favorite verses. Many of us quote this verse all the time. And it's a powerful one. We put it on cards. But oftentimes we forget the context in which it was written. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, when you go into Babylon away from your home of Israel, and it is not pleasant in Babylon, they are not nice rulers, I will come to you and I will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and you will come to me and you will pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. The question for us is this. If we are in a season of struggle, it may not be the 70 years of Babylon, but are we seeking God? And if we are seeking him with all of our heart, then we will find him to be so very faithful to us this Christmas season as we persevere, as we wait, even through silence, he is faithful to fulfill his promises. It took 70 years, but he did that for Israel as they returned home to Zion and let out a shout to God. He did that for Michael and Emily as they prayed and they persevered, and then God answered those prayers. And he did that, of course, to the Jews, and he did it for the entire world, to the greatest underdog group of people ever, as he gives them his son. Born of a virgin named Mary, born under the heavy weight of the law, to redeem you and me and all of those who realize they're under the weight of a law that they could not fulfill to grant us adoption into his family, to call us his sons and daughters and redeem us both now and forevermore. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are always at work. We confess that sometimes we do not sense you. Sometimes we feel like we're not hearing you. And sometimes we wonder when you're going to come through and act. And Father, some of us in this room feel like we've been enduring a long period of silence, a long period of struggle, a time where we've had to persevere for too many months, too many years. And so we're begging you to come through. We're asking you to relieve some of the pain. And we're asking you for renewed dispensation of your grace a renewed experience of your presence. Father, would you please surprise us this Christmas? Friends, I wonder if you'd even just extend your hands out to God with your palms open right now. And as I pray, would you just pray with me? God, would you please surprise us this Christmas? Please surprise us this new year. Would you refresh us once again with your presence? Would you remind us once again with these core truths that you know us, you know our future completely, that nothing surprises you, that you are at work behind the scenes, and we can count on this, that you love us and you are for us, and your will will be great for us. You have a future, a plan, and it's not to harm us. 
God, we want to be open-minded to you. We realize you might answer our prayers in ways that are different than we would like. So we stay open-minded and open-hearted to you. Father, there are friends in this room that have been distant from you for a long time. And I'm asking for them that you would surprise them with the beauty of your grace, with the beauty of this story, that God fulfills his promises, that his word is true, that he has demonstrated it to be true time and again across history by fulfilling prophecies, by rising his son from the grave, and by bringing us into his kingdom. I ask God that you would renew our faith in the process you would do far more than we could ever ask or imagine by trying to gin up a little bit more faith of ourselves. We hope in you. We hope in you. You're the living God. You're able to do what we could not do. We invite you now, through the silence, in this season, to speak to us to love us, to care for us in surprising ways that we did not know that would be better than we could have planned. All of this is possible through your son who was born on Christmas Day, in whose name we pray.